G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Fly Fishers Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole and talk about fly lines. Um, probably the most misunderstood and complicated area of fly fly fishing, I would say. Um, yeah, there's been a, a bit of a request for this one, and um, it's actually been a good one to put together because it has, uh, I guess got us more familiar with what's out there and a little more uh, technical and familiar with the lines that are on the market. So it's been a great little exercise for us as well. But, um, you know, the fly line, uh, we're going to try and keep it as broad as we can um, without making it sound too technical, but I think inevitably it might get a bit complicated at times. So bear with us. We hope that you um, you might get a little bit out of it and uh, and. Hopefully we won't be uh, you won't be too overwhelmed by the content. But um, listen on. Um, we're going to start just with the very basic of the fact that the fly line is the weight that we're casting. Um, you can go back in time and and look at history, and you know originally it was things like silk and hair in the um, in the fly lines, and that's what created the mass that in turn tows the fly. So I think that's important. You know one thing that really separates fly fishing from conventional fishing is that we cast the weight of the fly line and not the weight of the fly so these days uh, fly lines are built on a core um, and core materials can vary quite greatly um, and then they're covered in a plastic now that plastic can be uh, a pvc material or it can be a polyurethane material but both of them work the same in providing that weight in the cast that in turn tows the fly um, now, when you look at a fly line wall in a store like ours at the Fly Fisher, it is overwhelming. And one bloke that knows just how overwhelming that is, is Max Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for the introduction. Absolutely correct. But, uh, the, the variety of choices out there is, uh, is staggering and uh, technology technology is achieving uh, some wonderful things for our uh, for fly fishers in general. And the packaging, right, Max? Like, I remember, you know, to start with, you were having a lot of issue with just uh, figuring out which line weight, what the weight was, the sink rates. You know, a lot of the boxes look exactly the same but contain completely different fly lines. Oh, absolutely. And um, and the, the text on the boxes is very, very uh, tiny and uh, the descriptions are fairly complicated at times, uh, but that's why it's good to walk, walk into stores that like uh, businesses like this where you can, uh, you can ask an expert. Yeah, I remember a guy in the industry once saying to me, uh, with confusion comes profit, and <laughs> it seems that the fly line companies have been well subscribed to that. Um, but yeah, there's obviously different families of lines and, and colourful boxes on the wall that are designed to be merchandised really well, um, but maybe don't offer a lot in, in terms of what the lines are various applications for. So certainly... You know, they did go down a bit of a road of things like uh, trout lines, bass lines, uh, and now probably more they're talking about the taper more broadly and how that might apply to an application, a specific fly fishing application. Um, but 
you know, the core is obviously a pretty fundamental part of the fly line. That's the internal part that then gets covered in a plastic. Um, Roscoe, you're a pretty hardcore kind of guy. Can you talk cores for us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the intro again. Um, <coughs> some companies have one core. Other companies do about four different cores. Um, I think it depends on the plastic that they use determines uh, how many cores they need. Um, so Airflow, for example, use a power core. Um, and because of polyurethane is much more uh, suited for temperature, as in it doesn't really get affected too much. They don't need to run too many different cores to achieve the suppleness they need through the line. Um Scientific anglers, um, they do four different cores. Um, they do uh, like a cold water core, a tropical core, a multi-filament core, and they also do, for your big fish, they do a 100-pound core, obviously for very specialised fishing. There's not many lines on the market at all that have a 100-pound core. Um, obviously, tropical fishing, uh, it's hot and plastics become very supple. Everything expands and uh, becomes very soft. So a cold water line in those type of conditions becomes too soft, too supple to do anything with, and we want a supple line. But um, unfortunately, it can become too supple. So they develop them on a stiffer, uh, uh, basically a monofilament core um, that can handle the heat. So it's stiff in cold temperatures, but as soon as it warms up, it, it does become supple enough uh, to be able to be used effectively in those locations. Perfect, mate. Um, yeah, that pretty much sums up the core and its relationship to the coating. Um, the coating, though, like that's probably the magic in the fly line. You know, as I mentioned, it's the weight. It's also the slippery part that's going to slide through the guides without resistance. And it's also the part that's going to give you the desired density or sink rate that you're looking for, be that floating or a different different sink type or sink rate. Um, the coating is uh, the way that it's extruded and put onto the line. It can be done in a few different fashions, being weight forward, double taper, and you could probably lump in a triangle taper in the same uh, category. So there's a bit of variety there. Um, if you want to look at an exploded view of that, I strongly suggest you just jump onto Google and Google double taper fly line, weight forward fly line, so you can get a bit of a picture of how they look. But basically, the first 30 feet of a weight forward line is exactly the same as a double taper line or a triangle taper line. That is the, I guess, the AFMA weighting. Now, it gets a bit complicated and you can get down a bit of a rabbit hole with various um, models of fly lines because some of them these days are being overweighted. We're going to touch on that in a bit um, to try and explain why they do that kind of thing. Um, but as a general rule, uh, I guess a six-weight line, whether it be double taper or weight forward, has a specific grain weight for that first 30 feet of fly line. So... It's important to kind of recognise that you're not really going to get a better performance out of a double taper or a weight forward line if it's just that front 30 feet of fly line that you're using. Um, where it really starts to differ is beyond that range. Um, with a weight forward line, it transitions to a very thin running line. So once you've got that head out, you can basically just let go and the line shoots a long way thanks to that thin running line. It bounces and rattles through the guides without resistance or less resistance than a thick line and that's what helps you get more distance with less effort. In contrast, a longer headed line 
it's going to enable you to aerialize or false cast quite a lot of line because you've got a fat area of fly line that's at the tip of the rod and you're going to be able to carry that weight, more line out from the tip of the rod. Um, that really ultimately means more distance in contrast to what you might think. You'd think a more aggressive, short-headed fly line might give you more distance. What it gives you is faster distance. It doesn't necessarily give you more distance. A longer-headed fly line is what's going to ultimately give you more distance because you can false cast so much more line. So these tapers, they have uh, little differences and there is basically a taper out there that's been designed for every single application in fly fishing that you could ever imagine. We're spoilt for choice. Uh, every day in here, we are helping people decide on which taper, which coating, which core um, is going to suit the application of fly fishing that they're doing. Um, it's a bit of a minefield out there. And the biggest, I guess, consideration or unfair advantage that we have in here is a familiarity with which lines cast well on which rods um there's so many different rods out there we we, we kind of know not just the current range of rods but even discontinued rods so we can always provide a bit of insight and maybe a decent recommendation on what might suit you best um but without that luxury of uh a bit of experience having cast a lot of rods with various lines, the best thing you can do in yourself is try a few different lines. You know, grab your mate's lines, uh, come into the store and try a few lines. Like it's um, every rod is different. Every rod is going to bend more optimally or feel good to you with a specific line. Now, that what we're talking about is that grain weight. That grain weight is going to get the best bend out of your fly rod. So that might be a even a seven weight on a six weight rod or it, it might even surprise you it could be a five weight line on a six weight rod that gets the best bend and feels the best for you can you cast further with a heavier line well there's a bit <laughs> of a misconception with that i think that's the biggest thing we need to clear up i guess yeah so the first 30 feet of line is designed to get in an ideal world let's say every six rod six weight rod bent the same way and for the first 30 feet of a six-weight line, that gets the best bend out of a six-weight rod. So in an ideal world, running that six-weight line on the six-weight is going to give you the, the best distance, the most distance. You're going to be able to aerialise more line than any other way. By overlining, using a line that's quite heavy, that's going to improve the close-range casting performance. You're going to get... Not your long range. Not your long range. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, you know, a lot of tournament casters probably are underweighting their lines yep. in order to aerialise a whole lot more lines. So this idea that we print six weight onto a packet and it's going to cast the best on your six weight rod, it, it will, but it's a bit of a moving feast. There's no rules with this stuff. So, you know, the rod is capable of probably even casting up to an eight weight and if you're at all familiar with the scientific angler range, they do one called a Titan. And that particular taper is two line sizes heavy for that first 30 feet. Um, and that's, you know, why it casts so well in close. Um, and it's also what enables it to carry a much larger fly than one might normally cast on a six weight rod. But if you wanted to carry a lot of line and really get the ultimate distance, the Titan taper isn't it. What it allows is quick, accurate casting. So 
this is why it's a, a bit of a moving feast. It pays to try a few different lines, be familiar and read the packaging as much as you can um, so that you can, I guess, select the right line or the best line for the application that you're, you're fishing. Well, you can get very specific with what you need to do. And, you know, there's not one line that's a really good multi-purpose line, hey? Like, you can really pigeonhole what you need to do. Like, I'm fishing in this particular waterway at fish that are this far away, and you can get a line that's going to do exactly that job. Where to get a line that covers brim in estuaries, trout in lakes, trout in small creeks, that's tricky. Yeah, it, it's impossible. You know, if it were just a case of producing one line, I think, you know, maybe even the world would be a better place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it'd certainly make our job a lot easier. This wouldn't podcast would be happening. I think a lot of people look at lines and they're like, oh, what's this, the, the line that's going to cast the furthest on my rod? Well, that's not – talk about fishing rather than, you know, what you're trying to achieve with your casting, I think, and then you can start from there and work your way back. That's right. You know, some of these overweighted lines are uh, quite aggressive and maybe not ideal for delicate presentation purposes. Um, you know, they might not roll cast as, as well as others. Um, there's, there's a few things within the taper design that make them ideally suited to one application and maybe not another. I think the other thing I was going to say is we get a lot of people in here that are casting grass casting or they're casting at a, uh, a club and then uh, some bloke picks up the rod, oh, you, could go, you need to overweight this. Why? Why do you need to overweight this? Is it because you're casting at the pool or is it because you're casting at a fish? What are you trying to achieve here? Are you? Is this because you can't get the distance out of it? Is it not loading the rod properly? Are you trying to deliver a size 20 parachute atoms to a fish on the Goulburn that's only 12 feet away from you? Overlining is not going to do anything for that. It's normally not the answer. And yeah. I think this is the, the thing that people need to realise is that there are fly line companies out there that are investing millions in making sure that their lines are uh, ideally suited to the rod that they were designed to cast on. So, um, you know, like to, to make a comment like, oh, you need to overweight that. Well, the line might already be two line sizes heavy because he's casting a Titan through it. You've kind of got to have a fair bit of knowledge on the specifics of that line before you can go making too many outlandish comments. But... Again, you know, trying a few different lines on rods. Um, you know, I, I have read something more recently that, that explained that if you're not such a good caster, um, you know, overweighting a, a rod, I guess, enables the angler to feel a bit more and, and uh, it, it might fast track their learning a bit or at least make life a little bit easier. Um, I don't know about that. I think, you know, ultimately practice and technique is really what's going to get the best out of the, the outfit and the rod. And if you're needing to s- severely overweight a rod just to get some feel, um, then you probably need to take a bit more of a, a look at your technique um, before you go just changing lines out. We've had uh, plenty of customers uh, come in here with their reel and line um, and rod, and they've gone, okay, feel this, have it, you know, see what you think. And I've felt it and gone, oh, look, it does feel like it's too light for your rod. I'm not going to go get a next size up, but I'm going to get you a six weight that's a slightly different taper or weight, put it on your rod, and it loads beautifully, and the customer can cast it so much nicer. So, yeah, just just because it doesn't load up doesn't mean you need to go to the next size up. That's right, yeah. Um. You know, I think uh, one of the gr- it's probably a really cool area of fly fishing. A bit like fly rods, technologies and new technologies are coming out all the time with regards to chemicals and plastics. Um, it, Ross, you mentioned before, you know, airflow 
being a company that have a, a, a polyurethane coating um, and it being a bit more temperature stable. And obviously it behaves totally different to a PVC type plastic. And so they're uh, able to do different things with their lines and um, and how that relates to the core. But it's it, it really is quite fascinating when that – uh, hydrophobic coatings, uh, longevity, you know, coatings that are designed to excrete uh, a lubrication and flotation during the lifespan of the line. You know, all these things are, are really quite exciting that ultimately are going to add to your experience on the water, but also the durability and longevity that you're going to get out of that fly line. One guy that knows a hell of a lot about fly lines and fly line technology is Rene Vaz of Manic Tackle Project, the Australian and New Zealand distributor of Airflow Fly Lines. Rene, thanks for joining us, mate. Oh, great to be on the show. Cool, man. Um, mate, just uh, would love to start with maybe just getting a bit of history on the Airflow Fly Line company. Um, look, the history um, extends well beyond... Um, me, but I've probably been involved with airflow for almost, yeah, yeah, I just over 20 years actually. So, um, a UK based, so a Welsh based uh, manufacturer of fly lines. Um, and where they're a little bit different is they came in manufacturing fly lines out of um, polyurethane versus every other manufacturer is predominantly using um, PVC. So, and um, so that's kind of. Um, they're, they're different. I reckon when they started, they were kind of the mad scientists of the flyline world. So just trying to, um, you know, um, do something totally different to everyone else. I think, um, to be honest, it probably wasn't a perfect start um, with um, things not working. And generally, if everyone's doing things one way, there's a proven way. And so I think um, Airflow certainly started on, uh, you know, a crazy route of doing some different stuff. But um, the cool thing about them is um, since that, that point is one, they've perfected their technology and made a really good product. But they've also invented so many different things, which loads of the other Flyline brands have taken on over time. So they've done stuff like welded loops. They first to do that. I remember um, it was... Um, 2001 when um, a line called Platinum came out which was uh, essentially the welded loop version of their um, polyfuse lines and uh, so that was the first of those um, they started density compensation which is uh, you know sinking lines which sink tip first rather than uh, in the uh, classic old U-shaped um, sinking um, profile um, what else have they done uh, you know, a bunch of different lines like that. And um, so really cool company to be involved with. And I think um, I've been involved with um, uh, obviously the distribution, but then designing lines for our market in both fresh and salt water. And so I think the cool thing is having somebody who's got really great technology and then you start to really um, envisage how it's going to work for your market and how it can actually improve your time on the water. Absolutely. I think my observation on the fence has been Airflow's uh, lines and those innovations that you mentioned there are just so fishing related. Like they're obviously fishy guys that are involved there and, yeah, you know, like they're, it's all about just catching more fish and, and getting more enjoyment on the water. Yeah, yeah a really good example of that would be um, the 40 plus fly lines and I think there's some lines which are similar um, now under other brands, um, although they probably don't have the same running line diameter. But as um, it originally 
Gareth Jones, who's um, one of the directors at Airflow, he was um, in the Welsh team. And um, the um, competition rules, of course, were it needed to be a factory manufactured fly line over um, 20, 28 yards long. So nobody could um, nobody could use a shooting head. So he just made in the factory a shooting head for himself and welded it to a really skinny running line, and that was the first 40-plus line. Um, I think um, apparently there's a porn magazine in the UK called 40 Plus as well, which sounds gross, right? But um, they, um, that's kind of where the name came from as well. But um, So, um, you know, a real cool um, line for standing on a bank, throwing as far as physically possible, and so still for um, throwing streamers on a New Zealand lake or, um, you know, your Melbourne um, lakes or Tassie lakes, um, there's no better line than just standing on the bank and biffing a long cast and being in contact all the way through. Just covering a lot of water. Yeah, 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 really good. And is Gareth still heavily involved with the company? Yeah, he is. So they sold, um, so the UK ownership um, sold the business um, two and a half years ago, just before COVID, um, great time to sell any business. And... Um, uh, to uh, Mayfly Group, who, so that's the company that in um, Colorado who own um, Able Reels and Ross Reels. So now the family is Able, Ross, and Airflow. So I think they've been a really good home for um, for Airflow. They spent a lot of money on machinery, um, and so there's a loads of um, you know really cool machinery coming on board. I think what we're seeing is a really really high quality of finished product coming out. Um, and improved consistency. Um, and, um, you know, we're just saying, I, I guess from my point of view, a, a nicely well-run company now and uh, and an incredibly good um, product quality coming through. So so Gareth's still on board, so really still good, got that really hardcore knowledge of the technology and um, and stuff, but I think probably a, a slightly better home as far as a, um, a hardcore fly fishing company being Mayfly Group. And are the lines made still in the UK or is, are they coming from North America now? Uh, no, no, it's still 100% made in the UK. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, the, the polyurethane, how, like, what does that enable airflow to do with a fly line that maybe the, the PVC uh, manufacturers can't do? Yeah, so not, this is my um, understanding and, and I'll, I'll try and say it in a way that it's not, Degrading to PVC, but um, so my understanding of PVC is um, very much a solvent-based plastic. So um, similar to how a real crude version of explaining that is, it's like house paint. So when you um, you paint a house, you've got a solvent in the paint, and the solvent um, obviously comes out, and the paint dries and that and goes hard. So that's kind of how a solvent-based plastic would work. Um, versus polyurethane as a thermoplastic. So you, you, you heat the plastic up, it turns into a, a liquid form and then you extrude it and then it cools and hardens. So the benefit of that is <clears throat> polyurethane is um, by far the more modern um, plastic forms. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of technology uh, and, and um, evolution in, in polyurethanes. They are, you know, a, a lot more durable. And so I think... One of the strongest things we found, and, and a good example of the New Zealand guiding market, is um, we found you know guys might like other fly fly lines out of the box, and and um, they go, oh, this this cast great, but um, it's really about 
how this thing passed after a couple of months of use and is it still awesome? So, you know, some people buy fly lines more often than not. And I know, Andrew, you and your team are really good at um, selling guys lines, which is awesome. And we, we all like that. But some guys, you know, you might have a line for a couple of years or, or longer. But if it doesn't feel as good after a month, um, after it's come out of the box, then suddenly that's really what you're comparing it to. And I think with polyurethane, is the, the product is just so durable. And so to say our guides are really kind of obsessed with it because, you know, they buy a line and it just keeps working. We notice it here. We um, uh, we um, don't have a, um, a massive casting pond in front of our office. It's just a big car- concrete car park. And so whenever we're testing rods and lines and stuff, we just cast on the concrete. And the lines get beaten up, you know, but but um, uh, our lines don't don't tend to crack or anything like that. They they just tend to last. And yeah, we've got a few lines here which I test rods on, and they've been hours being cast on concrete and they're fine so um so yeah that's probably the big polyurethane story and when it comes to holding um uh like you know um, being having loads of tungsten in it on a really high density sinking line is that polyurethane really tough so we would do our lines are arguably the fastest sinking lines in the market um the other thing is uh, it enables um us to create really skinny running lines so that new superflow technology, the running lines are really thin. And because that polyurethane is really durable, we can make a really thin running line that doesn't fall apart. So that's kind of cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, probably explains that polyurethane advantage. Yeah, wow. And it sounds like it's still a material that's maybe seeing a bit more development than, than that of PVC. So the future looks pretty bright for airflow, would you say? Yeah, look, um, and it's, it's ongoing. Like right now, I know they're playing with new plastics non-stop. So there's this continuous kind of um, opportunity for testing new plastics and seeing how that um, relates back to, um, you know, some plastics, of course, are, um, are, are just slicker and they um, they cast better and some plastics are naturally more buoyant. Um, you know, we've um, got some plastics actually with in our sinking lines, which are, Really um, hydrophilic, so they, they, um, they they like water and they're perfect for a sinking line because if you put them on an intermediate line, you can do a really slow intermediate line, which is you know very close to a float. You know the density is really close to a floating line, but with those lines, you want them to cut through the surface. You don't want it to get stuck in the surface and 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 um, and cause a wake. So uh, we, there's a plastic there which suits that perfectly but of course it's terrible for a floating line so we have slightly different plastics for that cool and uh ridge 2.0 is that the the latest and greatest from airflow yeah so two new technologies one was um the superflow technology and so um that technology um is um essentially a new um this new flow agent so when the the lines extruded um, they were able to reduce running line diameter significantly. So that's a, kind of a big one. The other thing in Superflow is a um, new um, gassing method. So the lines have now got glass microspheres in them to improve buoyancy or, or, or you know, reduce the density of the line. So um, that technology is uh, really significant in that it um, reduces compression in the line. So although you want a nice supple line, which obviously forms a nice D-loop once you 
um, stop the rod tip. You also want the line to make sure that the line or the, the you know the oval or circle shape of the line um, or cross section of the line doesn't compress because when it compresses, so if you've got say um, 20 yards of line out on a back cast and you you, you haul forward. Um, it's quite a lot of weight at the rod tip and that compression actually kind of makes the line stick at the rod um, and it doesn't shoot as well. So that Superflow technology with that new, those glass microspheres, you've got the, the buoyancy built into the line, but you also get that lack of compression. So that's a big deal. And then as you say, the, the latest kind of technology is this update and um, the ridge profile. So uh, what we've found now is so... Um, you know, texture is definitely a big thing in lines. I think the benefit of texture is that it does reduce friction in the guides. The line shoots a lot better and uh, increases uh, surface area so the line floats better. And um, one of the things I find is when you're, um, you know, you're casting a lot of line and you're stripping line um, at your feet, you've got um, the fly line can tend to stick to itself. So if you've got two smooth surfaces, it's like two pieces of glass and they tend, it can stick to itself. Um, and so with that ridge profile is the running line doesn't tend to bunch up as much. And so, you know, you're making that long cast and then you don't end up with this knot um, stuck in your guide um, when you just thought you are going to hit this hero cast and, um, or, you know, you're stripping streamers on a boat and, um, and, and getting these tangles and, um then you spend your time untangling line while your mate's catching a fish. So um, that's kind of, um, yeah, the key part of it. So Yeah, cool. And the, the, do the ridges add buoyancy as well? Yeah, the reason they add buoyancy is, this is how buoyancy really works in the line, is so most companies, from what I understand is everyone's in this similar market, the density of a line is probably at max 0.7 of, um, uh, you know, so if density of water is one, then um, most lines are at max 0.7. So generally people towards the tip of the line is 0.7. So you have, um, uh, you know, the buoyancy comes from both density and then the other one is water repulsion. So that's why, you know, when you grease up a line with um, a line lube like, um uh, you know, learn line speed, then it, it does actually improve buoyancy. And the reason it does that is because it's helping the line um, repel the water. And so that keeps your line floating. So that ridge profile, because it increases your surface area, it actually improves the water repulsion. So that does definitely improve um, buoyancy. And we, we really notice it, especially um, uh, one of the keys on and buoyancy is having you know, these thinner running lines and thinner tip diameters um, on like a presentation taper is you actually need that um, extra surface area to improve your buoyancy. So, um, yeah, it definitely helps. Cool. No, that's great, mate. Um, you know, airflow, uh, I guess using a polyurethane material, they're, they're arguably creating the most durable fly lines in the world. How important do you think that is environmentally? Oh, I think, um, well, there's two sides to it. Is one of the things is, look, for all of us, if our product lasts longer, I think it's it's ethically um, uh, a lot better. I know they, um, you know, 
fair enough, I should say it, but I've just started. So, well, you know, they are looking at recycling um, the lines and, and, and they're able to do it with polyurethane versus you couldn't with um, other plastics. Um, I think that's good. But look, I think if, if you've got a product that lasts a lot longer and you, we're not just regurgitating plastics, it's a, it's a really good thing um, ethically. And um, yes, yeah, so I, I think durability of products are really great great part of the ethics on um, on our consumability on product. And the Mayfly Group and Airflow, generally, they seem pretty committed to that, don't they, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. A really nice move, um, and it took a little while um, for this to come on board, but so all of the um, uh, line spools being um, manufactured, uh, supplied at the moment, um, and everything we've got coming through now, is um, on a recycled plastic spool, so that's really cool. So really, um, uh, I know Costa Del Mar uses similar plastic on its um, its ocean skimmed plastics from um, uh, you know like our fishing nets and stuff like that. So that's really good. So they you know they're doing their best. Um, uh, I think um, you know our environmental impact is we've all got to look at a way of you know we we can't you know. Um, over overclaim what we do, but I think all we've got to do is just try and improve everything along the way. And I think Mayfly is really committed to that with the Airflow brand, and we're seeing that come through now. Oh, that's great, mate. Um, Renee, really appreciate your time, mate, and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Cool. Talk soon. One of the companies that do a fantastic job with fly lines is Scientific Anglers. Uh, Here locally in Australia, they're represented by a company called Mayfly Tackle. Uh, Andrew Summers is their lead there, and um, he's the guy that we call every week, or probably every day really, to to access more fly lines. Um, He distributes a a range of different brands, including Orvis and Scientific Anglers being his his main ones. But uh, we've given him a call and uh, just to, to have a bit of a chat to him um, because he knows scientific angler fly lines intimately. Um, it's a really interesting conversation and I hope you guys enjoy. Andy, I appreciate you coming on, mate, just to talk a bit more, uh, I guess, uh, in depth about the scientific angler lines and how, I guess how they're made, um, how they're different. And um, I guess it'd be cool to kind of touch a little bit on the history of the company too, because there's a bit of a story there as well, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're—I oh, suppose they've been around for oh, 76, 77 years now. They were established in uh, nineteen forty-five. Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, been a, a long time. And I think I think there was a lot of businesses developed around that time after World War Two. Uh, people came back with obviously uh, seeing some atrocious things and. Uh, Recreation and having a great time was a priority in their lives, and uh, and uh, the three guys who decided that they'd try to make a fly line that floated all day instead of the silk lines back then, which you had to treat, and even at the best of times they didn't float that well, and and after several hours of use they'd sink, and you have to dry them out and retreat them and all that type of stuff. So they saw a, they saw a market um, potential and. You know, pretty much developed the first PVC fly line back in 1945. Yeah, wow. So the PVC line was kind of what launched their company from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So they, they were the first to uh, develop a, a non-silk fly line that uh, didn't need treatment throughout the day and, and stayed afloat throughout the day. 
and it's just really just continued on from there as far as the uh, I suppose the technologies that developed and um, different um, products that they've taken on as I suppose things things move forward. So you know they they were the first even back in 1959 to apply microbluens to fly lines. Yeah, uh, which which helps with buoyancy and the density of floating fly lines. So, um, and it's pretty amazing that they had microbluens back in 1959 because they're a microscopic uh, glass ball that they actually put into the, uh, the the PVC on the fly lines, which uh, helps float, uh, reduces its density, and yeah, quite incredible, really. It is. Yeah, when you think about that, is it still that the, the same glass balloons that they're using in today's fly lines? Is much change? Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. So they, you know, and most of the manufacturers um, do apply micro balloons um, to it. And I believe micro balloons were originally designed for the concreting industry um, to add to concrete to, to make the concrete lighter without affecting its strength. Yeah. Um, um, and I think that's where it was originally. Um, um, taken up or designed for, but uh, obviously back in those days, um, 3M being one of the world's largest manufacturers and Scientific Anglers was owned by 3M, they had their fingertips at the latest and greatest of anything to do with chemicals or or um, compounds and stuff. So and quite often some of those chemical engineers were fly fishers themselves and if they found something that they thought 3M uh, scientific anglers could use, they'd um, go across and, and supply some product and see how the uh, scientific angler dudes could um, put that into creating better fly lines because it's all about just generating a uh, manufacturing a product that um, uh, removes, obviously, they want to make it as slick as possible and they want to make them as durable as possible. And, um, and slickness is one of the big things because if you remove... If you make a very slick fly line, you're reducing friction, and if you remove friction, you're creating durability and obviously better castability as well. But just just like the Royal in a motor car, you have a, a zero to ten fifteen W, and and the zero it's cold up starts so that it reduces friction while it's cold, and as it as the motor heats up, the oil heats up with it to protect it at normal yeah. running temperatures. So so friction is the enemy of anything really. Uh, when it comes to durability and, and scientific anglers have led uh, slickness for a long time now. Yeah, and I think they they maybe had that inside run early days under 3M ownership with their experience in, in chemicals and, and additives for, for things like that maybe. Oh, absolutely. And and I think it was maybe in the late 60s or early 70s, I, I can't won't be quoted on this, but I certainly do know that scientific anglers had a monopoly in the US, well, not only the US market, but the world market with their PVC fly lines. And um, it's actually a, a against the manufacturing rules or something in America that a, no particular company can have a monopoly on the market. And they were actually forced to give two of their machines. And that's where the Cortland fly line company was founded. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit of history I wasn't privy to. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, quite, Very quite generous incredible. on scientific anglers' part. I'm not sure that kind of thing would go down today. <laughs> no way. Oh, I think it's still. I think it is still a, a, a current sort of rule. And and I, you know, SA probably 
hated the idea of doing it. But in the long term, it's, it's better for everyone, and especially the, the angler, because what that does is it does generate competition, and competition generates um, development. It does, always, doesn't it? And always, yeah, I, I think trying to stay. On the fence, just looking at scientific anglers today, it's kind of cool to see that that, uh, that that process and that determination for innovation and improving their lines just hasn't sl- even slowed down at all. You know, in, obviously in more recent years, all of us are the, the new owners of, of scientific angler, but they haven't stopped, have they? They just keep on pushing. No, and if anything, they've probably even put a extra two cylinders in it because um, the funding from all of us is a lot, lot more than they were getting from 3M, believe it or not. So, you know, when, when that takeover took place in 2013, all of us went out and obviously headhunted the uh, the best folks in the industry to move it forward that extra extra step and um, and gave them the funding to to do that research and development. And it's, it's you know, I don't need to tell you, you know, your sales are fantastic with the brand and, you um, um, and you, you being a specialist fly shop, your your motive for sales is to look after the customer first. And and I can only assume that you selling so many scientific angles fly lines, you feel that that's the best product currently in the market to best service your your clients. So it is, you know, and you know when you, you drill down to the durability and the the tapers for every application that you you might want to uh, fish, it's it, they, they've just got it well dialed, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that is that is their forefront uh, is durability. They 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 are expensive fly lines, but in turn you are getting uh, you're probably getting better value for money because they last so much longer. Yeah, you know, and that, that that's the secret. You know, like like I said, um, reducing that friction because you know recently they obviously introduced well back in back in Oh, 1998, they introduced what they called AST, which stands for Advanced Shooting Technology, and that was a Teflon-based product. And once again, in America, you, just, you develop and research and spend a hell of a lot of money doing this. You obviously get a patent on it, but the patents expire. And once again, that's because somebody's got a monopoly on the market. Yeah. So once AST expired... The other fly line manufacturers got on board and started utilising it. And then, obviously, during that period, SA were in the background looking for the best and uh, next big thing. And that was back in 2017 when they re- uh, released uh, Advanced Shooting Technology Plus. Yeah. And I don't know what the substance is that you're using for that because it's IP. Um but it is just next level. It, nothing sticks to it, you yeah. know. And the biggest issue utilising was it that even uh, applying it to the, the fly line, it, it, the PVC wouldn't stick to it. So then you've got to work with chemical engineers and work out somehow to develop a primer or something to allow that chemical to remain within the, the PVC. And obviously they achieved that after a couple of years. Um but the other, the other real big feature of scientific anglers fly lines is the fact that their slipness agents are throughout the whole coating of the fly line from the core to the surface. 
it's not it's, it's not like they've manufactured the fly line and they put a, a coating on the surface of that fly line. It's actually mixed in with the PVC before it's extruded onto the core, which means throughout the life of the line, the AST plus, which has a uh, molecular density smaller than a PVC, it's constantly leaching to the surface of the fly line, providing an almost out-of-the-box feel for the life of the line. And it's quite incredible. And, and allergies and that, that don't stick to it. So it's just an, an unreal product. It is. And is there an actual lifespan of that? Like, is there a point where, I guess, that excretion of, of, um, of lubrication, is that does that run out eventually or...? Is it- no, it lasts the life of the line, and, and what's the life of a line these days? It really depends on how often the uh, the consumer goes fishing. Uh, it depends on the environment the angler's fishing in, whether it's, you know, if he's a lake fisherman and he's stripping his line on, onto the mud and that on the shoreline and that, that will eventually be, I suppose, forced into the surface of the fly line, which will then decrease the life of the line. So proper maintenance of the fly line is quite a few products that scientific anglers manufacture uh, for, for cleaning fly lines and it is very important to to clean them um, they've got cleaning pads and they've got a fly line cleaner which is a, a solvent that's um, that they've tested that doesn't affect the, the PVC um, and just keep maintenance your line because whenever I go to fly clubs and that and do casting presentations with the fly lines and that um, I can hear people's lines are dirty and, yeah. and they don't notice it because, because that Dirt builds up over a slow period of time that they get used to the sound. And, you know, I'll run a cleaning pad over it. And no joke, some of them can cast oh, 15, 20 foot longer. That's how dirty their lines are. So, because what it does. It's also, you know, it, it says just how important that, that, that slickness is in the overall performance of the line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, seeing as you did mention it there, just the cleaning of the fly lines, um, there's a few different cleaning products that scientific anglers uh, make and recommend for their, their different types of lines. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, the, the, the AST Plus lines, which is the amplitude textured and the amplitude smooths, really just need uh, the cleaning pad run over them. The cleaning pad, one side of it has got like a, I don't know, a grade. It's not even a sandpaper, but... Let's say it's a, like a wet and dry, but it's a, like a 10,000 grit or something like that. Um, you just run the line through that, and that removes any of those contaminants that are on the surface of the fly line. And that's pretty much all you have to do to an amplitude uh, fly line because they've got that AST plus in them. If they're really, really dirty, you can use their fly line cleaner, which is just like a detergent. You just put a, a cap full in to three litres, three or four litres of water, put your fly line in there, let it sit there for five or ten minutes, which sort of breaks down some of those contaminants, and then run it through the pad. And then they've got their uh, SA dressing and cleaning pad in a kit. And they're, they're fundamentally used on their their uh, mastery series, their frequency series, the ASL series, um, which don't have that AST+. Plus. And uh, effectively what it does is it, Applies obviously some um, slickness to the line, but also helps with um, UV and stuff too. So, um, and I know when Bruce Richards came out in 1998, there were a whole heap of different cleaning products on the market. And um, somebody asked him at a talk, you know, why are you bringing it out? And he just said, well, anglers as a whole 
just keep putting shit on their fly lines and a lot of that shit's bad for the lines. So so we, we thought we'd just bring out some shit that was good for the fly lines, you know. So, as you know, pe- people are looking for that one percenter and all that and I think by putting on, you know, WD-40 on the fly line, it's going to be slicker, but it's it, it may have a reaction with the PVC and actually degrade the line. Um, so, you know... If people want to put stuff on their lines, um, SA have got a product that won't deteriorate the, the, the fly line itself. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the cause in, in scientific angular lines too. I, I believe there's three different types, is that right? Or um, Yeah, no, there's, there's three types I use, but, um, you know, they've got a multi-filament core and these all change in thickness and, and gauge depending whether it's a two-weight line or a seven-weight line. But their multi-filament cores are predominantly a very supple core, and you usually find those utilised in cold water fly lines. So a lot of the freshwater fly lines will utilise the, the multi-filament core. And the multi-filament core is also hollow as well, so that does help with floatability. Uh, then they have a monofilament line, and that tends to be used on what they class as their warm water lines. Um Slight, you know, slightly stiffer than the multi-filament core, but not quite as stiff as their tropical. And and it's pretty much when they develop a fly line, the first thing I think about is climate. Where's it going to be used? And and that dictates on what type of core they use. Um, so your your monofilament, like you'll find that in obviously their clear lines, but um, you'll find it predominantly in the warm water lines because it provides just the right stiffness. Um, for that environment, and then they've got their tropical, and as that's sort of self-explanatory, that's used on their tropical fly line. So even in the hottest environments, it still remains stiff, um, which you want with warm water and warm uh, air temperature. Um, and the other thing too is when once they do that, because the, the PVC. It's mixed. It, the, the PVC that scientific anglers uses is what they call flex PVC. Yeah. And that's used in a whole heap of industries, including the, the medical industry as far as making drip drip lines, blood bags, all that type of stuff, because it's a very um, safe product to use. Um, and it's the same product that scientific anglers uses. But the when they combine that with a, a product called a plasticizer, they can really control the suppleness of that coating. And the, the secret to a, a good quality fly line that has the long-term durability is ensuring that the, that the core and the coating are happy together. Because you can't have a core that stretches at a different rate than the coating because the line will delaminate. So you've got to get those two right. And the other thing too, if you have a, a core and a coating fighting each other is you get really bad memory in fly lines. So those those two really do have to be, you know, pretty much it's like a wedding, you know. They, they make for life. And if, and if you get it wrong, you're just going to have a bad performing fly line and one that just starts, doesn't have the long-term durability. So Yeah, that, that's maybe something that's not talked a bit about, but the plastic actually varies uh, in addition to the core. Is that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 yeah, so that plasticizer dictates whether it's a harder coating or a softer coating. And and 
both those dictate how much stretch the core's got. And it's, it, it is vitally important that those two um, mate together or you're just going to have bad memory and you'll have, you'll have, You'll have delamination of the core against the because if the, the core is stretching at a different rate than the coating, then it'll delaminate internally, and then the line will twist on itself, and it'll even at times the core will, will split through the surfaces of the of the coating. So uh, it's it, it critical that those two, and that's the versatility because PVC mixed with plasticizer, it gets put on the core, and then it actually gets put into an oven, and it's cured. And that cure, that fly line stays at that cure for the rest of its life. It can't alter. You know, some some manufacturers use um, different plastics, and some of those plastics are inert. And what that means is that they're manufactured, and they're in a solid form. Then the manufacturer buys that off the plastic manufacturer. They warm it up. They mould it into whatever they want it moulded into and then it air cools back to its inert form. And that's good for certain products that you're manufacturing, but if you're, you've got an inert product and you go into the really cold, it becomes stiffer. And if you go into warmer climates, it becomes softer. It's not like a cured product where you can dictate what its stiffness is going to be. And that's that's why the majority of, of fly line manufacturers actually use a, a PVC because you can control its 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 stiffness or its softness much more easily than some other plastics that are on the market. Yeah, interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the texture on, on some of the scientific angle oh, lines yeah. in the, yeah. the Amplitude Textured Series. What um what was the move there? Like, what's the what's the thinking behind the texture and the advantage? Um, well, it was something like SA's always trying to discover um, the next best thing, and obviously we've talked about friction in the past, and it was all based on trying to reduce friction, and that was first introduced in two thousand and seven when they introduced the shark skin range, and what they what they did is they looked at things in nature. And they looked at things like the lotus leaf and and different plants in nature and why dirt or water just don't stick. You can't get anything to stick to a lotus leaf. So they looked at that uh, under microscopes and so forth and tried to work out why. They looked at dark skin and how, how they can slide through the water with minimum amount of effort and so forth. And they came up with what they called shark skin. And under a, a microscope, it, it looked like all these... Um, Little arrowheads that were on the on the fly line, and um, and it was absolutely fantastic product. And I've actually got a them in my personal collection because they are the most memory free fly line you will ever ever get in your life. But they had a couple of negatives. That was one; they were very noisy when you were casting them, and the other they were quite coarse on your hands. So you were, you know, went out wet fly fishing for the day and you did a lot of stripping, they'd actually draw blood on your fingers. So, because you're rubbing, you know, pulling the fly line over the same part of your finger. So, so that was taken on board by SA and then they brought out pretty much what we know now is, um, as shooting texturing, which is on the amplitude fly lines. And they're the first fly line in the world that's triple coloured um, with triple t- Triple texture 
Um, now, with the triple colouring, what they do with that is they show you what part of the tip of the fly line is, then they change colour to the belly, and then when the belly reaches the, reaches the, the running line, it changes colour again. And the advantages of that are, especially with fly fishing, is that when you – obviously, most people know that you can't actually pick up the head when they're on the running line because it'll just collapse. It's a disaster. So if you've got a colour differentiation and you can tell when the belly starts comes through the tip of the guide, you know that you can start pick up and recast if you need to do so. And with the texturing – they still have retained the shark skin texturing. They call it floating texturing now, and that's utilised on the front taper and the tip of the fly line because it's still, it just pushes itself off the water. Um, so it floats extremely high, um, and then it goes into the shooting texturing, and the shooting sex texturing is like looking at a golf ball, it's little divots taken out of the surface of the fly line. Now, that does a couple of things. It obviously increases the surface area of the fly line, which helps it float. It decreases the tension in the fly line. So it's like, you know, like a bike chain. It just flexes really easy without any tension. And the fly line is, is a, cylinder, a long cylinder in effect. And if it bends, you're going to have the internal radius of that bend compressed and you're going to have the external radius of that bend stretched. And by putting texturing on it, it actually reduces a lot of that tension internally and externally on the on the on the cylinder. So that helps with durability. It, it minimises the line cracking. And then where the the rear taper meets the running line, they've actually got a one foot smooth part, and they call that a tactile reference point. So if you're fishing in the dark, you can actually feel it. The, the shooting texturing, then you feel a smooth bit, and once again, you know that the, the, the rear taper and the belly are starting to come through the rod guide so you can pick up and recast. Um, and then where that tactile reference point is, then it m meets the shooting line, and the shooting line's also got the shooting texturing on it. So they're, they're you know, triple-coloured and triple-textured. It's like technology at its finest it is isn't it? it's kind of taking it to that next level and just uh utilizing the best coating uh for the, the different section of the line so it's not just you know oh one one texture or one coating for the whole line we can do three different ones <laughs> it's incredible yeah, yeah. oh it is it is and a lot of the machinery is actually manufactured in in house because there's just there's just not a big big enough demand for obviously fly line manufacturers for a company to spend the resources to make them. So a lot of the stuff is built in-house. Um, and, yeah, how they do that, I'm stuffed if I know. It's the one area that scientific anglers doesn't let anyone in because of the intellectual property of it. Uh, I'd love to see how it's all done, but um, that will never happen. I've just got to live with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any new or emerging technologies you're excited about from scientific anglers? Um, probably... I wouldn't say I don't really get told in, uh, about anything emerging, um, but probably another thing that I think's been a, a huge advancement and and uh, is this their seamless and triple density fly lines. 
And that, that to me, has been a, a huge step in um, either wet tips or, or full sinking lines. Because um, in the past, uh, when they had, say, a wet tip fly line, you'd have, obviously, a, a floating density part. And then, you know, it might be 12 foot, 15 foot tip of the fly line is with a, a sinking density. And pretty much you looked at the fly line and it was a, a dead line with a floating next to sinking. And we used to call those lines back in the days duck and chuck lines because where those meant, it really affected the way the energy transferred through, through the fly line and they'd just they'd kick. And sometimes it would just be out of control and quite often you'd pick yourself in the back and all that type of stuff. So that's what we used to call them duck and chuck. But um, scientific, uh, obviously, another a technology that they developed was the, the smooth transition between two different densities and whether that's floating to sinking or in fact sinking to sinking and and um you know they've got their new still water range which probably released three four years ago and they've got their tight and triple densities and and what that does is it allows them to put different densities throughout the length of the fly line and it'll what that means is that when the fly line is sinking it actually sinks it doesn't sink with a belly in it, and that really, really helps the angler in keeping in contact with the fly. Because um, quite often, a fish will take the fly in the sink, and if you've got a belly in it, you're not even aware of it. Um, and I know when that uh, triple densities first came out, the Sydney market just got on board with them big time because of the, the kingfish. Mm. The kingfish usually school up at the bottom of buoys and bonnies and all that type of stuff, and being able to sink a fly down while keeping in contact with it, it really, really uh, increased the, the catch rates. Um, so, you know, they've, they've got like, in the still water range, they've got like a, uh, a sink one, sink three. So effectively half of the fly line is sink one and then it blends from sink one into sink three over, over, over a dictated length. And it can be eight to ten foot where it's actually sink rate two and then it becomes sink rate three. And I, I think that's one of the the biggest things I've seen as far as uh, making fly lines easier for the consumer to use and also more successful for the consumer to, to use because their, their catch rates have increased due to that technology. Yeah, so they cast better and they put you in better contact with your flies. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Um, in that that sonar range, which is obviously a pretty pretty exciting part of the, the the whole scientific angler, I guess flagship of lines, there's there's two main tapers that that we see then in Titan and in Stillwater. Can you just explain a bit the the difference between the Titan tapers and the Stillwater tapers? Yeah, so the the, the actual Stillwater tapers are, are based on what we well still currently available uh, the MPX taper. Um, so. The MPX taper has got a, uh, it's got a relatively short head. It's in the mid 30s, the length of the head, and it's got quite a front, uh, short front taper. And what that does is, is allows the energy uh, a shorter distance to transfer through, so that it's got enough energy to to turn over a clean of flies. So most, most anglers these days are using two, and some of them are even using three three flies spread out five feet apart. So you're casting a 20-foot leader with fairly, fairly um, 
air resistance or weighted flies on it. So you need, need a pretty pretty good taper to turn that over. The Titan tapers across the range, anything that's got Titan on it, they're actually overloaded by two two rod weights. So if you buy an eight weight, it's actually a 10 weight line. But the theory behind that is that the Titan taper is specifically designed to be casting air resistant flies and heavy flies and you actually need that mass to turn those flies over and it's an interesting thing you bring that up because scientific anglers puts all this information within their website and their catalogue and they've they're very open and transparent about it so you'll see you'll see on the website it tells you two two sizes over uh, half the size over um, three quarters of a size over in the Grand Slam series, and that's dictated by the style of fishing and the flies that they're going to be casting. And I have seen huge improvements with people who have struggled casting those types of flies improve because they're building in, I suppose, these uh, built in features to make it easier for the consumer. Yeah. Now, if you have a look at SA, they always list the first 30 feet, which is the AFMA uh, regulations, and that was the developed when, you know, fly fishing was building and that had right manufacturers and you had fly line manufacturers and there needed to be some kind of a guideline that both those manufacturers had a guideline to how a rod should bend and what a fly line should weigh. And, um, but these days, as... as Graphite's got better and technology with rods and that. Uh, the AFMA scale is slowly starting to be disregarded, I suppose, and and manufacturers are looking at what's making it easier for the, the consumer. Um, so SA does have the first 30 feet and then they'll have an overall head length weight as well. So for a consumer, if you, say, had a beautiful Helios 3 fly rod, and you found a fly line by going to your local dealer who have who have demo lines that you can put through your rod and you really find a fly line that works well and your average cast distance is 55 feet or something like that. Next time you buy a fly line for that, you might go, oh, I want to try a different style of fishing or a different target or use larger flies. Use look at the fly line and look at the weights of the fly line rather than whether it says weight forward six or weight forward seven. Actually have a look at the grain weights of the line and you might be able to, it might surprise you, you might, might end up putting a five weight line on your six weight or you might end up putting a seven weight on your six weight. Uh, it, 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 it's getting a little bit confusing for, for everyone out there, but there is a, a, a purpose for all the manufacturers to sort of be changing the the grain weights of their lines for specific purposes these days. Yeah, and the ultimate solution, I guess, is just running a few different lines through your rod to, to find that perfect one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I know I know, a classic example of that was years ago when I was Simon Goresworth and um, Jim Barchi from Scott and all that. They, the planets aligned and both those guys were in Australia at the same time. So down in Tasmania, they held a... Uh, a fly fishing event, and um, and Scott were very generous to put a, a, a rod up as a as a prize. Uh, I think at, I think back then it was the radium was still um, their, their prime rod at the time, and um, 
and all the people had to do who attended this thing was have a cast, and whoever cast it the furthest actually won the ride. So it was a pretty freaking good prize, you know, just have a crack a car. And, and I don't know on the first Presumably day, you sat down and didn't have a cast, Andy. <laughs> no, nah, I didn't have a cast. I didn't want to win the rod. <laughs> Would have been very embarrassing on your part had you won the rod, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was funny because on the first day it was running, um, it was running a, a, a different brand fly line through it, and um, and then on the second day I had the organizer of the event come up and and ask for actually what was new at the time the the Amplitude Smooth Infinity Taper, which is a beautiful taper. You know, it's got a fifty. 50 odd foot head and it's just it's just great all round fly line and he he whacked that on the on the radiant on the second day and a lot of the people who competed in the competition on the first day had a, had another crack on the second day because the distances would get slightly longer and all that type of stuff and and the, the event organizer showed me the stats at the end of it and he said all these casts were with the different fly line and all these casts with infinity, and he goes, look at the names on both days, and it averaged out to about 19 feet, 19 foot further they were casting with the scientific angler's uh, amplitude smooth line. It's incredible, isn't it? I guess there's no no better gauge than that. No, no, I, I found it really fascinating. I thought, wow, that really just does highlight um, slickness and uh, taper design and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that was quite a... Uh, an interesting chart to look at at, at the end. Anyway, some guy won the rod, and he was bloody tickled pink as he should be. You know, good brand of rod. It's uh, it's crazy how far we've come from silk lines, and from that time from silk lines, we've also become more environmentally conscious about our lines. And one of the best moves from scientific anglers we've seen here in the shop is putting their lines on a cardboard spool. What else are scientific anglers doing to be sort of more environmentally conscious about their lines? Uh, when they bought out their new absolute range of leaders and tippet material. They actually made their leader packets 100% biodegradable. The ink, the clear window, the paper. Um, so they're fully biodegradable because, you know, you're putting a new leader on and your packet gets blown out of your hand and it runs, it drifts down the river and all that type of stuff. So so they are recognised that as, as fishermen who utilise the environment probably a lot more than most people need to really start looking after and minimising impacts. So so they, they did that with their litter packaging. So don't even throw it in the bin at home, just bury it in the garden. It's fully biodegradable. Um, and like you said, uh, uh, removing the plastic um, spool or fly line retainer in, in the boxes from new is just, just, how good is that? You know, it's just... It's unreal. Like, you look in our, in our bin here in the shop and it's, uh, you know, half the contents is always those plastic spools. <laughs> well, now, absolutely. Now we can just stand on the scientific angler one and it crushes down beautifully and we can get, you know... <laughs> we can recycling bin. Straight into the recycling bin. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a few people, you know, a few people got their feathers ruffled because they reused those plastic sp- spools, but they didn't just cut it out. They actually... Uh, at that time, introduced uh, fly line wallets, so you can store fly lines in a wallet, and you can label them and all that type of stuff. And they also released the spool regulator, and that's just a probably the best way of changing a fly line or putting a new fly line on your reel 
out there. It's just so easy to use. It's very easy to use on a boat. Um, so they haven't haven't just thrown thrown them. Those guys who love those plastic spools in the bin, there is an alternative now, and um, and a I better solution. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think it is a better solution too. But yeah, they're constantly constantly looking. Yeah, uh, and you probably even notice with the the Dacron that's coming through from scientific anglers, they've removed that from the the plastic blister pack. Yep. And they and they've just got a little hook on the the plastic spool that goes around to stop the Dacron falling off. So once again, that's just to minimise you know single use plastics. You know, so they're they're constantly looking at how they can have a positive um, impact on the environment, you know, because it's a concern for everyone. And I think another key thing is making a line that lasts too. You're not throwing away a line every season. So you do, it's a fact, you get multiple seasons out of Scientific Angler's fly line and having one that lasts really counts towards the environmental aspect of it too, I think. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's data and Scientific Angler's even from... You know, when I first started representing them back in 1997, they've always had a laboratory and they've always uh, measured their fly line. And what I mean by measure, they just don't go, well, here's a new fly line, let's give it to Lefty, he can cast it for two months and if it doesn't crack, all's good, you know. Um, they actually have, once again, in-house manufactured product that they can actually test the durability of their fly lines and... Um, and they test everyone else's. And recently there was a, you know, some some uh, marketing guerrilla warfare, uh, warfare out there from opposing manufacturers making some pretty pretty ludicrous claims, to be honest. And um, SA at that time thought, well, the only way that, that we can put the correct information out there is to engage with a third-party laboratory and get the test done third party, so we've got no influence in it. And and they had that done, and and um, the re- the results were quite astonishing that came back from that report. Um, and yeah, some of some of the cycles um, that some of the other other brands of fly lines do is is quite appalling, to be honest. A bit of um, insight into the dirty business of fly lines, right there. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose I suppose if you don't have a if you're not getting a, traction in the market via product then the, the the next best thing is to try and destroy your opposition with you know i suppose marketing bullshit you know yeah. put it bluntly yeah. um, um instead oh. of just fucking all right why aren't we getting traction are we listening to the people who are using the product are we listening to the consumers um let's just put the opposition down and see if that works you know? and it's yeah. just no i think uh thank goodness people can see straight through that shit I, well <laughs> I, well I, I think you're right andy because it, you know everything's so accessible these days that you just need to type it do a google search and there's so much information out there that that uh you, you can find the truth from the um the uh, i suppose the bullshit and um you know, there's still a percentage of people out there that just go, oh, wow, I didn't know that, and um, don't look any further into it. But that's where I suppose a, a dealer comes in that you guys, uh, as dealers, sell all the brands. And, you know, from consumer feedback, I suppose warranty claims and that, what's working and what's not working in this current we, time. We do I fish from time to time too, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Remember when we last saw each other? <laughs> 
<laughs> Driving up to Tullabrook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, mate, it's been uh, been great getting you on the airwaves and really appreciate you uh, chatting to us a bit about the lines. I think it's great that, you know, not only are you buying the best when you, you buy scientific angler lines, but you can also feel good about doing it um, thanks to them being that bit more environmentally sustainable and friendly. So it's, uh, no, it's a great product. Um, we love it in here, obviously, and uh, really appreciate your time, mate. Uh, no problems at all, Andy. Um, thanks for having us on. Pleasure, mate. We'll get you back on sometime soon. Yeah, and hopefully, like I think I discussed with you a little while ago, uh, hopefully Jack Pearce from Scientific Anglers will be visiting Australia, hopefully the start of November, and I'll I'll get him in a headlock and uh, drag him in for a podcast because uh, that guy knows everything about fly lines. Mate, know? that would be great. We will roll out the red carpet Stay for that man. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a good bloke anyway, you know. He's uh, done a lot of fishing trips with Jeff, and he's a he's a he's an angler, and he, he understands what's required by the consumer because he does does so much of it himself. So yeah, that that would be a very good uh, podcast to do, I reckon. Excellent, mate. Look forward to having him. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I guess you know, like most fly fishers, we all kind of have uh, our favourite lines. Um, might be partly because of the rods that we're casting them through, but also just that that type of fishing that's really within our wheelhouse um max you know you're you're you've got the place down at Skeens creek mm-hmm. uh lovely home there um also on airbnb is that right little plug <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we can google it we can google it <laughs> it's a beautiful part of uh, victoria yes and um tell us a bit about the uh the brim fishing that you do there and, and what sort of gear you prefer for it Sure. Okay. So, or line specifically, I should say. We're blessed with um, many sort of waterways which contain brim uh, in that in the otways. Uh, generally speaking, you're uh, fishing uh, at times. You know the sections of the estuary which is uh, flowing as a river into into the estuary or the estuary itself, and. Um, uh, brim found fairly commonly all, all the way through. My the, the thing about brim, the, the thing to realise about brim is that they're bottom feeders, so it's important to get the fly to the fish, the feeding fish, which generally is feeding at the bottom. Rarely do they feed uh, mid level or surface level. These are fairly rare occasions, so the idea is to get the fly down to the brim, to where you think the brim may be, as quickly as possible. Hence, you need a fly line that basically allows a fast sink uh, rate. Uh, the Sano Titan sink tip is an ideal line, one, one that I use often, 99% of the time. Um, and it allows um, a good rate of, um, of sink, you know, up to sort of five to six inches uh, uh, per, uh, per second allowing that uh, fly to get down to the bottom and you can start your strip or your retrieve process. So, so would a fast sink tip and a floating line be the two main ones that you'd fish on brim? Pretty much, pretty much, yes. Uh, a, float, a floater would be in shallow water. You fish uh, a feeding in a couple of feet of water and sometimes you can see them tailing. Generally speaking, you're fishing uh, six, eight, ten feet of water, so you want to get your fly down as quickly as possible, and that's where the, the Sanitizer uh, 
does the job very, very well. The other thing, other thing, thing, uh, thing to consider is current. Um, a lot of these estuaries are, are tidal, so um, they're, not, they're not necessarily uh, still waters. So again, uh, getting the fly down to where the broom are feeding is very, very important. So uh, a, a, fast, a fast sink rate uh, in these situations can make the difference between catching and not catching a fish. Yeah, and yeah, obviously, you know, multiple sink rates can be a real advantage. And you've experimented, Roscoe, quite a bit in the bay with various mm. sink rates of lines out of the boat. And, and how, like, what, what sort of sink rates are you using there in the bay? Pretty much the fastest now you can go. I started pretty light, maybe, you know, an intermediate, then it went like three inches per second. Uh, and then I went straight from three inches per second to like seven or, or nine or whatever the, the, the fastest you can get is. And um, I think in, if I'm if I get onto a school of salmon or something that's on the surface, as soon as that fly has hit the water, I'm pulling it back straight away. And by pulling it back, you can keep that fly up. Ideally, you, you know, you might want to do it with a with a floating line, um, but for most of the fishing, same as Max, they're on the bottom, like especially snapper, and you'll almost, you know, you, they call it a dredging line, and um, you want that line on the bottom. You want the line, you want at least two or three feet of the actual line itself dragging across the bottom so you know that your fly is on the bottom. If you're not on the bottom, you are not catching fish. I d- I- Interesting, isn't that we're talking saltwater lines as a start? I guess yeah. <laughs> maybe it's just it is actually uh, maybe a little a bit of a newer area of fly fishing, so it is kind of exciting for us. So maybe that's why we got into it. But let's um, let's talk a bit about trout lines because there probably is more different tapers uh, with regards to trout lines than there is any other species specific fly lines. Um, Peter, you you experimented with quite a few maybe you know talk a little bit about some of the, the lighter stuff like yeah. the you know three and four weight small stream sort of yeah. fishing what what sort of things do you look for in a fly line at that uh those sort of line classes um so i like the scientific angler lines they're my favorite and the favorite line for small streams from scientific anglers is the creek trout so that's got a really really short head to load the rod at close ranges and, a re- and still has a long enough belly to be able to mend the line and achieve that drag drag free drift, which is so important on those small streams with touchy fish. Yeah, so you find that line it's uh, capable of, say, carrying a, a beadhead nymph as well as a dry fly? Yeah, that's right. Well, it's also built a line size heavy, so it can turn, a, turn those bigger flies over as well. Cool. So a real sort of multi-purpose lines for the needs of a small stream fish. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, you know, like then when you start to get into some bigger water and, you know, I guess the, the, the Goulburn's the obvious one, but the Ruby can, you know, in its lower reaches can be pretty big too. That's, that's where we might bump up to say a five weight rod. Uh, what, what would you look for in a fly line then, mate? Yeah. So on the five weight, again, scientific anglers, their trout taper is really, really good. So that's got a really long front taper to allow you to delicately present a dry fly. Um, not ideal for turning over multiple nymphs, but you'll get away with one single nymph and a really long belly as well to allow you to mend the line on, you know, those longer, slower pools on the Goulburn where, you know, you might be drifting, leading a fish by about 12 feet and having to drift down to it, yeah. keeping the drag off the fly. Yeah, yeah, where you need to mend line, obviously that longer head can be a, a real advantage. Um, it, the, the other thing, I guess, is the, the forward taper of a fly line, a longer forward taper um, does encourage and adds to the the ease of roll casting your way up a river as well and you know these two lines that we that peter's just mentioned there in the creek trout and in the trout taper from scientific angler got 
a very long forward taper that just enables you to roll roll cast your way up a river very easily. Um, the the other, I guess, uh, the next phase of this w- would be lake fishing. You know, lake fishing is uh, um, maybe where quick, accurate casting is 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 imperative and becomes uh, the most important aspect that you'd be looking for when considering a line. But uh, Peter, what sort of lines? You, have you used there and, and would you suggest for, for the needs of a lake fisher? Yeah, so two lines generally covers it all. I'll start with the floating line. So the uh, six-way infinity line is my go-to. Uh, so that's got a really long overall head for control at lo- casting at long distances and a short front taper to turn over you know, heavy flies like your beadhead magoos and things like that that are so popular in our lakes. Yeah, so, yeah, no, it seems like that shorter front taper, you can pretty much just pick up and represent and make a change of direction cast very quickly. So if you see a, a fish move within your peripheral, you can quickly pick up that line, get the fly to where it needs to be in front of the fish, um, and that's why these sorts of tapers work so well for that that style of fishing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. Um, and then, like, a sinking lines for your, for your still water fishermen, what... what um, so yeah, scientific anglers again, they make their sonar still water range and the clear water camo is the obvious choice for me. Uh, that's also built a full line size heavy, sinks at 1.25 inches per second and a very similar taper to the infinity. So short front head punches into wind. Yeah, cool. Short yeah. front taper, sorry. Yeah, they're, and they're, yeah, they're over overweighted yeah. a little bit, aren't they? Yeah. Which you want them to be like... And the thing is with the intermediate line, it lets you fish in really windy conditions, whereas even a floating line like the Infinity, something a bit more heavy and a bit more aggressive will still get blown around in the wind. True. Yeah. So where, you you, you know, you might want to bump up in, uh, in I guess, line size or a seven weight, for instance, in real high wind, you, you can almost achieve the same sort of thing by, by chucking on a, a sinking line that's less affected by the wind. Is that what you... Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. yeah. So sinking lines ultimately deal with wind a lot better than floating lines they are thinner too so it makes sense yeah cool um yeah it's like the obviously a floating line and an intermediate that's going to do you for like 98 percent of lake fishing that intermediate is just a great all-rounder for uh, stripping wet flies and streamers um but then you know the the world of sinking lines is just exploded with their sinks rates yeah so there's like for example Cortland as well make the fast intermediate which is basically a scientific angler's sonar sink Type three sinks at three inches per second. Yeah. Um, then we also have booby lines, which have a floating tip, but they sink in the middle, so they allow you to fish booby flies just above weed. Yeah. And things like that. Uh, and then sweep lines as well, which is effectively the same as a booby line, but it lets you move your flies at a constant level through the water. So say five feet off the bottom, as opposed to a sinking line that brings it back on an angle. That's right. They, they enable you to keep your flies within that, that zone of, of fish um, and, and just keep them within, within that part of the water column really effectively. Um, I guess they were originally sort of designed more for the, the, the needs of the booby and blob fisher, but um, they've quickly started to find their way into being an effective line for fishing any streamer because the way that they tow the fly is quite different to how a, a normal uh, gradual density um, fly line might behave. But... Um, yeah, there's a lot of development going on in lines. You know, we've obviously talked a bit about Peter's lines that he uses from Scientific Angler. There are equivalents from the likes of Airflow, uh, Rio. Um, you know, as we touched on, every fly line company is 
building and making tapers for the various applications of fly fishing. And so there's a line out there for, for everyone from all the brands. What about if the wind's really blowing hard? Uh, probably go the line size heavier uh, with a longer head so you can sort of really punch into it. Yeah, so that's that's another, uh, I guess, facet and something we should talk about a little bit is a heavier line weight is a fatter, heavier mass in which it, it can't get blown around by the wind. So that's why you'd go up, say, from a, a five weight to a seven weight in a lake fishing situation because the wind really kicks up. Um, the less that wind is blowing around, the less your line's going to get tangled around your feet um, and the less it's going to get blown around when you're casting and trying to make presentation to a fish or get distance. So that's that's the other big advantage. It's not just the weight of the flies that you're casting but also how affected by the, the wind that it actually is. Um, yeah, the world of, of trout fishing lines is, is enormous. All the brands do a fantastic job at providing a taper that's going to suit your fly fishing application. Um, I think it's uh, it, it, there's some other things we probably want to touch on, like the colour of fly line. What about, you know, Max, have you ever had an experience with the colour of fly line being identified by the fish, like a specific colour? Or I think it's, uh, look, uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Probably it's, it's all in our heads. We think that a particular colour is going to spook the fish. I I like using um, sort of uh, obviously muted colours, you know, like greens and greys, etc. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't use a pink line, uh, you know, you know. You, you pink could look good on you though, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, let's pick another colour, maybe orange. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure how fish perceive colour. I think we all feel more comfortable fishing. Fly lines that are have more of a camouflage type effect to them. And more recently, we're seeing lines that have got multiple colours along the length of the line, not to uh, really make them less visible to a fish, but just to be able to identify the the head, the front taper, and the running line within a line, and just knowing when you can actually pick up. Um, what we mean by that is that if your rod tip is sitting at the running line, the very thinnest part of the fly line and you then try to pick up that fly line off the water, it's going to hinge or stick in the water. You don't have any fatness of fly line there to give you that control and give you that leverage to pull it out of the water. Um, So that's one of the the downsides to, I guess, a shorter-headed fly line where you might be trying to pick up that running line out of the water, and that's why a longer-headed fly line, particularly if you are fishing at distance quite readily, lake fishing, that kind of thing, um, can be a a real advantage. Um, in the in the the saltwater game though, like going back to fishing in the bay, Roscoe, you you find those shorter headed lines to be a bit of an advantage. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, especially fishing out of a boat, if you've got the wind behind you, you've got a drogue out. I think um, you know, let's just minimise the false casting. One one back cast and just aerialise as much line as you can and get it out there. Um, you know, get that line to the bottom as quickly as possible. Um, obviously. I think with saltwater, your, your casting technique is is probably better than 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 like trout fishing in a river because you don't have anything to deal with. So your your, your technique should be pretty bang on, and um, if you if you're pretty bang on, you should be able to get a lot of line out with one false cast and maximise that fly in the water. 
Um, yeah, going back to, to colours, um, you know, I, I you know, I think in the saltwater environment it doesn't matter too much. And sometimes it's actually maybe a bit fortuitous to have a line. I mean, we saw this in Albany where you can have a line where you can see where your leader is. Some of those clear lines, they might not spook fish maybe they don't maybe they do who knows but you can't see where your leader is to where to to know how much you can pull in when you can see the end of your line and you can see that 10 12 feet away you can see the end of the line you can look another eight foot nine foot to the end of your leader you can see if there's a fish on there or not you know you can just pick that up and cast again especially if you can see fish and you're casting the fish so yeah going back to the color of line i think sometimes it is fortuitous to have a a line that's coloured all the way to the end, or at least you can make that, um, you can see where the leader starts and the fly line ends. You're right, mate. That's a very valid point and one that we <laughs> obviously forgot to mention there. But identifying where your fly is in the water is just fundamental, and that's a huge advantage when you can see your line on, on top of the water. Whether that be polaroiding trout, you know, along a lake edge or uh, fishing a place like Albany for blue bastards, just knowing where your fly is and then, uh, I guess knowing how to retrieve the fly and reacting to the to how the fish is reacting is a is a real uh, fundamental part of fly fishing and something that maybe a clear fly line just can't offer. Um, Seen a lot of US fishing and stuff lately, and they've got crazy coloured lines: yeah. bright chartreuse, bright orange, and it's it's all to do with fishing. It's not for grass casting; it, they just want to see the line. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Does look good though. It does. It looks good too. <laughs> if the fish see it and they spook the fish, I think the jury's still out on that one. But it does make fishing easy. I think when you can see your line, it does. Yeah, I remember fishing a lake edge up around Ballarat and having a fish uh, come within viewing, and it it obviously saw my line. I don't think it was the colour of the line. It was probably just the fact that I was actually moving it at the time. And it thought, oh, what's that? And you could tell that the fish just all of a sudden changed direction and then swum down the fly line. So it was coming along the bank, it's hit the fly line, and then it obviously saw it like a bit of a fence, maybe with the sun or something, I don't know, but it's hit the line and then travelled out and travelled along the fly line, got to my fly, ate my fly. (laughs) (laughs) And I landed him, but I just thought that was the luckiest day of all time. I mean, that yep. it's never happened since, and it never will again. But you know, sometimes we probably give the fish a bit too much credit, and and maybe maybe even the theory of them being able to see your fly line and then track that down to your fly is uh, a worthy one, proven. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a great story, and I think that's a testament to how much time you spend on the water that you get stories like this. What do you mean? I never fish. <laughs> <laughs> never enough, um, and. Forbesy, like cod fishing's uh, been something of, a, of a, an addiction to you and you're really, you know, trying to tap into that. What uh, what lines are you fishing for that, mate? Yeah, look, I mean, you say addiction, I still well and truly haven't cracked the code at all. Haven't or scratched any, that itch. Yeah, haven't scratched that <laughs> itch. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I think when you were saying we were doing a podcast about lines, I think the one that really came to mind for me and the, and the line that I think I've been most impressed by because of its innovation is um, the scientific anglers that uh, tighten sink tip line. Uh, in, in an intermediate, they've, they've got a few different ones. You can get a three or a five inch uh, per second, I, I think. Um, they've just got a really aggressive short head on them. And where I'm fishing, usually up in uh, Deneliquin around my hometown, um, those waterways are often so overgrown. You know, you've got gum trees all around you. You've got you know, tall shrubs and things like that. And to be able to actually target those holes or the, you know, the structure that you're wanting to target, 
you you simply don't have space for a massive back cast, um, and and a false cast just ends up with a twenty dollar cod fly stuck in a tree. So you you're really wanting to be able to load that up and be able to deliver that cast with as little uh, stuffing around as possible. And, yeah, that's what I really like about those. So that's a single false cast. Is it Forbesy? Yeah, look, if you can, if you can manage that, if you, if you can do it, if it's a one and done, then that's perfect. Um, yeah. And then also just that sinking, because it's an intermediate sinking line, you know, that is obviously a subsurface tip. With the flies that you are throwing for cod as well, it's perfect for that presentation. You know, it, it's aggressive, so you can turn over those larger flies, um, those ones that you are offering. But also, because it sinks, um, it, it goes below the surface. It really is a fantastic option for fishing both surface and subsurface. Um, so with subsurface, you can fish down to, what, it's, a, it's the first... 10 feet of the line that sinks. I think mine's five feet, thanks to Ross's prop uh, on his boat. <laughs> um, but you can, you can fish that top column of the water really effectively subsurface and essentially swing flies down uh, with the drift of the river down underneath structure um, and suspend those in front of cod, which are a fish that, you know, like to sit there and look and they will think about it and they are temperamental and territorial. You want to just sort of bug them, I suppose. Um, but also, it's, it's really, really effective, not only at doing that subsurface, but fishing those sort of poppers or those surface flies. So, you know, anything with sort of a popper, a flat face, you can punch that cast out, sit it on the surface, and as you are stripping it in, because that tip of the fly line is subsurface, it'll actually pull those flies down a little bit, and you end up with a really nice cupping action, a lot of noise, a lot of splash, and quite a bit of commotion on the surface, which will get them stirred up. So... Yeah, I, I have absolutely loved it, and I think it is the it is absolutely essential to doing that style of fishing. You know, where I'm I'm walking the bank, I don't have space. Um, I'm looking to make those long casts to make it structure um, and, and the perfect yeah. line, both in 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 getting the fly to the fish as well as the sink rate and and you know how it fishes. Yep, exactly. Mm. Like, for, for delivery and also presentation, just all of it. Yeah, that's the that's the Titan sink tip. The like, only line, the only line you need. I'd say I'd I'd almost say that um, for rivers maybe, but I would say that like the winter. Yeah, you probably want to sink five or something for the lakes. Oh, yeah. if you're going out of yeah. the lakes, definitely. I mean, cod. You might see cod in in deep water, but they're not actually deep in the water. I don't think they're not regularly seen below about six meters. So um, yeah, I think that that Titan sink tip obviously does the job yeah and I, I think that you know you're getting out onto the lakes it, it comes down to as we've already dis- discussed if you're needing to get your flies down there's nothing that is going to beat a, a properly sinking fly line um you know and i'm talking about these intermediate sinking mm-hmm. tips if you get something that's actually going to really reach all the way down obviously that's um different it, story yeah different story and and totally necessary in those bodies of water Let's um let's touch a bit more on floating lines because I feel like, it, despite the amount of uh, talking we've done about sinking lines and just how versatile and and uh, how much they can add to your fishing, I think for for most fly fishers, ninety percent of the fishing they're going to be doing is with floating lines. Um, some of the the different coatings that you see out there and different textured coatings and uh, yeah lubrications and what have you that that make them float really high. Um, you know what uh i think everyone sort of have has had an instance where their floating line has started to sink at the tip mm. have you yeah. guys yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure 
<laughs> yeah, and that frustrated me, and I was like, okay, what what do I do? But uh, it, it's basically a dirty line, right? Yeah, yeah. In most cases, I think you're right. It's yeah. um, yeah. The 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 lines are, I guess, engineered to such a, a specific density that there's even lines out there that will float in salt water, but they will not float in fresh water. Um, salt water, obviously, being more buoyant than than fresh water. So I think. You can't really underestimate the engineering that's gone into each line and just how how specific those densities are. Um, and you've got to remember that with the longer forward-tapered fly lines, by the time it gets to that tip, it's very thin. And a thin line is probably going to have less buoyancy in it than a, than a thick line. Um, so that, I think, is why quite often we experience... A sinking tip. That sounds sexual, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> to, to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> a man not too familiar with the sinking tip. In yeah. <laughs> there's, there's also your current wind and very various other factors which come into play when it comes to that, that final uh, sort of a, sort of a uh, part of the fly line which can at time at times sink uh, the type of flies are you fishing you could be you, you could be fishing um, two very heavy tungsten. Imps. Yeah, that could definitely sink um, so the, Fluorocarbon the, leaders. Fluorocarbon leaders. Yeah. I, 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 I could uh, tell you a story about uh, two very uh, fine, well-known fishermen. One was catching fish, one wasn't. And by the end of the day, they worked out one was fishing the fluorocarbon and was not fishing the fly properly on the water. And right. the other was fishing a normal, you know, mono... And uh, so, yeah, that can be a, a very much a factor as well. One of the things that we've seen more recently with fly line companies is putting the loop on the end of the line. And the way that they do that is they literally double the line over and then weld it further back. Um, that is then a double thickness of fly line. And I think that's actually helped or added to the flotation of tips of fly lines. It seems to be less of an issue today than it was. But how do we, how do we fix the issue if we've got that issue? Uh Good question, and I'm not sure I've got the right answer for it, but I know that the guides at Millbrook absolutely chew through payette pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that too. <laughs> they, they, they're very afraid of the old sinking tip syndrome. <laughs> They've got the right blue pill to do something about that, it. That's right. <laughs> I, I have heard great things about the um, Scientific Angler's Amplitude Cleaner. Um, give your fly line a good claim with a with some cleaner, and uh, I think that your tip yeah. is uh, floating high and dry again. And that that is the thing, isn't it? Cleaning it, cleaning it, and sometimes it's time for a new fly line. True, simple yeah. as that. Yeah, you know, if everything has a life expectancy, and sometimes your fly line maybe be a little bit cracked, or um, you know, um, it's just had its uh, had its day, and yeah. time to upgrade to something new, newer technology. Anyone got a theory on a cracked fly line absorbing water into the core? Is that a thing that can happen? Or? That's a that's another thing, isn't it? Like you read yeah. about this stuff, and I don't. I think it's some of the claims are a bit outlandish. You know, like uh, let's say for instance the loop on a fly line. Now, um, I could be wrong here, but a, a loop on a fly line is only designed to last as long as a nail knot. They're not designed to outlast the actual fly line itself. So Stinking it's, lines, I reckon, even less. I mean, if you're dredging yeah. the bottom, they don't last long at all. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, it is definitely one of those things, you know. Like the the, I think you buy a, a fly line and you just ex- expect that that loop's going to be there forever. But they're they're a new thing. They're designed to get you going nice and quick. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, as a floating line, they they can help with the flotation of the tip. But I don't think chopping it off and then doing a nail knot. You know, actually exposing the core, if you like, and having it get a little waterlogged at the tip of the nail. Um, I don't, I don't buy into the fact that water's coming in to the core and being absorbed up the fly line. That's what's causing tip sinkage. Yeah, it's probably more more a dirty fly line. Yeah, um, I think yeah, the the ease of changing leaders. Like every, do we sell any leaders really that don't have a, a perfection loop on them? Not, no. not really. And yeah. I think the ease of just changing leaders, even if you want to work with a poly leader, that having the loop, I, I think, is is beneficial. Mm. Uh, I know some people don't like it. It affects the way they cast. I think 90% of people are fishermen, and they're not really that worried too much about a loop on the end. And it's only those 10% really hardcore fishermen that are that, uh, concerned that the way that that affects the fly line and chops that loop off before they even, you know, spool it up. Yeah. Well, it, it took me a... A while to get used to the loop. To be honest with you, about 10, 10, 15 years ago, I'd be I'd be cutting it off and uh, tying that on. But now you like uh, it. Uh, now, eventually, you realise you can't see your knots, Max. It makes <laughs> no difference whatsoever to catching trout on us. It's all about convenience and being able to change leaders quickly. Uh, and um, it's yeah. made your life easy. It's made my life easy. And you easy. were doing it so tough. <laughs> yeah, I think if you want to use polyleaders in a sinking line, you need that loop. No other way to do it, really, is there? Yeah, no, that's true. Definitely makes life easy. Um, what what else do we need to talk about, guys? You think we've covered everything pretty well? And I think I think um, the fly line issue is uh, hugely important. Um, and your introduction was was it was brilliant in regards to matching fly lines. I am quite brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that back. <laughs> Matching. Oh, oh, actually, sorry. Ego-free commentary. Let me, uh. <laughs> but uh, you know, it can be about the type of line for the type of rod, etc., etc. But then we need to also consider the leader. Okay, so uh, the length of the leader and how you're presenting the fly. So the line is there to allow you to propel that leader with a fly attached to it to the fish. So maybe there can be an area of discussion. Yeah, at some points as well. Yeah, we might need to do a, another episode on leaders. Yeah, um, probably another thing is um, when you cast a sinking line, a full sinking line, not a sink tip. The difference between a sink tip and a sinking line really is you can pick a sink tip line up off the water with thirty, sixty feet of line out and cast it back because you don't have much resistance in the water. When you've got a full sinking line and you've got all that line, 30-plus feet of line underwater, you cannot pick it up. You can't. You have to strip it almost all the way back in before you can aerialise line and cast again. I think that's something people, if they haven't, you know, some people hate, they get their sinking line, oh, I hate it. I can't pick it up and cast it. I can't cover rising fish. Well, you shouldn't be... You know, trying to cast a woolly bugger to a fish that's rising with a sinking line might not be the best technique. But also, you just can't do that. And that's that's just something you just... It's impossible to pick up a sinking line if you've got 30 foot of line out. Yeah. No, that's a very good point, Roscoe. Um, yeah, I guess there's no line that's going to kind of do it all, is there? No. You know? No, everything's a compromise. Yeah. And um, I guess we could, like... 
talk a little bit. If you wanted the, uh, I guess, a one line that's going to do it all, probably the best thing you could do is buy yourself a good floating line and then a selection of polyliters. Um, polyliters, Max, talk us, uh, to us a bit about the different lengths, maybe the different sync rights available in those. Yeah, look, I, the two that I've used are five foot long and ten foot long. Sync rates vary between two to three inches per second up to five to seven inches per second. They do have their their place uh, at times. Um, they are convenient. They're convenient, but very uncomfortable to cast as well. So you're removing your casting experience to a degree by using a polyliter. So it's purely for convenience. If you want to get you fly down to the fish as quickly as possible. Polyliters, they, they, they take on the name leader, but they're made from fly line. So they should almost just be called a, a sinking tip. Yeah, like a leader line extension or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah like they've, uh, they take on the same sort of colour that a fly line might take on um, from the tungsten powder that might come in the sink rate. Um, but, yeah, that, that sort of hinging that one might get from a loop-to-loop connection isn't ideal. So I think it's uh, shocking a more cast. dedicated sinking line is certainly a, an advantage. But at the very least, you know, if you were uh, doing a trip away and you at least wanted some flexibility to, and, you know, it really could add to your catch rate um, than a selection of polyliters you should probably have in your vest. Yeah, I mean, I've got a good story. We were fishing this year, actually. Um, three of us were fishing out of float tubes on a lake. Um, I forgot I had my one reel, but I forgot all my spools. I forgot all my sinking lines. And I was planned on fishing with the sinking line. Anyway, put the floating line on there, and I was fishing a weighted fly, which is not the way to do it, and I was relying on the way of the the weight of the fly to get down to the fish. Anyway, we went out there, and everyone else is seven-plus fish in, and I just can't get down to them. Anyway, one of the guys, one of my guy, one of my mates had a polyliter in his pocket, one of the 10-foot fast-sinking polyliters, chucked that on there, it was a nightmare to cast, but it got me down and got me catching fish. That was its only saving grace as it saved me from having a blank. So if your gear's not up to scratch, you break your sinking line, something happens to your gear, your reel stuff's up and you've got to borrow a reel with a floating line on, a heap of polyliters in your vest, your pack, your car, might just save you from having a blank. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Uh, well, you're not going to believe this, guys, but we've just had Harrison Perrin come into the shop and uh, he's got quite a bit of experience when it comes to spay lines. So we've sat him down, put a microphone in front of him to uh, talk a bit about it. Harrison, welcome to the podcast, mate. No, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. No worries, mate. But um, it is a totally different world of fly lines. Can you just explain uh, maybe the different types of spay? Yeah, so there's probably three main uh, thoughts when you think of spay lines. Uh, you think either a skagit. Scandi or the traditional styles. Uh, so traditional is a longer belly uh, line. You're getting out towards a 60 plus feet in terms of your, your head. Um, Scandi, you started getting into around that sort of 40 length or 40 foot length. Um, and then the Skagit is the shorter heads. So you're getting around anywhere from 20 to 30 feet. Right. Uh, for your shooting heads on those. And why might someone choose a Skagit over a Scandi or a traditional Spay over a Skagit? Yeah, so the... the the thought where they've come through with the Skagit lines is, is to turn over heavier flies uh, and weighted uh, sinking lines uh, at the front end there. With the traditional setup, you're just not getting that weight um, to be able to load and deliver that fly uh, out of the fish. Right. So as the fly sizes got bigger, um, for instance, then that's what sort of pushed that development of Skagit in a way, did it? Yes. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. So the, the need would say steelhead, which is where Skagit, the Skagit River in uh, 
US it started. Um, yep. The fish sit deep. They don't move very far for a fly, so you need to get it down deep right in their face. Um, so that's where the advent there of the Skagit lines have come from. Cool. Um, it seems like even more complex than, than lines in, in standard overhead casting um, when they start talking about grain weights. And, and uh, what are the, are the spay guys just a, a lot more educated or um, as to how grain weights affect how a rod might bend? Or why, why is it, do you think, that they always talk in, in grain weights rather than a, an AFMA rating, for instance, like we do with overhead casting lines? Yeah, so with the, with the grain weight, it's it's more so around the actual weight of the physical line itself um, across the head, be that you have different lengths of heads. So it makes it somewhat comparable between a longer headline and a shorter headline. So if you want right. to go and, and really turn over, it's quite heavy, um, you'll go quite short. Um, but if you're going more, saying fishing a, a dry line, for example, you, you can have the same grain weight, but it's spread over a bigger distance. Yeah. And is there, a, is it... Hard to achieve that ideal grain weight on a rod when, you, when you're talking spay lines. Is there a lot of trial and error in trying different head lengths and that kind of thing? Yeah, there's a bit of that. Um, some different manufacturers, Pureway um, over in Canada, has actually sort of taken the, the guesswork out of that. So they actually produce their rods based on grain weight. So they have a 400 grain, which is more of a, like a smaller switch style rod for you to go for trout and char. Um, then you start getting into the 510, which is more you sort of all around a steelhead salmon setup, which is you're sort of looking around about it more of an eight weight. Um, comparative uh, for that line yeah. uh, and rod. Uh, and then you start getting to a 600 or a 720 grain, which is really that sort of, when it's talking 720 grain, you're talking more Chinook salmon um, and, and really large rivers where you really need to get distance on your cast. Right. And um, the the rod lengths tend to change a bit with the various types of spay as well. I, I realise this is a fly line podcast and we want to talk more specifically about that. But um, why might a traditional spay rod be longer than a Skagit rod? What's the thinking there, do you think? Yeah, it, it's really with the longer rods to turn over that long cast. Um, with a traditional line, it's a lot easier to cast further than what it is with the shorter Scandi and Skagit lines. Skagit lines are for sh- tend to be shorter presentations, so having that longer rod enables you to control that longer um, head, where if the, rod, the rod's shorter, you don't have that same level of control over the line. Cool, mate. That basically sums it up. Um, you know, we just wanted to touch a bit on spay lines because it is a, an important and growing area of fly fishing, but um, Harrison, mate, really appreciate you sitting down with us. Uh, no worries, Andrew. Um, I've just looked at the time and the weather today is absolutely bloody glorious. It's dead still and Roscoe's got some fish to catch in the bay. So yep. he's going to take off and uh, I'm off. jump in the car and get down to uh, back home to Frankston and put the boat in and get out there. Yeah, I've got a guy waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, guys. Uh, look, um, thanks for tuning in. We hope that's uh, given you a bit of a, a run through on the various different types of fly lines and... Um, Obviously, any questions, what we do in here every day is answering uh, questions related to fly lines and anything else, uh, fly fishing. So feel free to get in touch. But thanks for tuning in. Uh, look forward to the next one. Cheers. Catch you later. See you.